0: Morning, everyone. We are in the book of John, the second chapter, and we're looking at the second part of chapter two, starting in verse thirteen. And before we begin, I should have probably mentioned this last week. Uh, chapter two starts, and all the way through chapter twenty-one of John, the end of the end of the book, it is nonstop, jam-packed, full of stories about Jesus. What he did, how he interacted with people, how he loved people that the world had called unlovable, how he forgave people, shocked people by raising them from the dead, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and himself rising from the dead. We can get very caught up in all the stories and think to ourselves, oh, this is one of my favorite stories. Oh, I love this story. Oh, isn't this a neat story? And we can be so captivated by the amazing things that are going on in the book of John that we lose the most fascinating thing happening in the book of John. And it's not the stories about Jesus. It's Jesus himself. And so as we look at this book, and we see week after week these amazing interactions that Jesus has With the people, with the religious leaders, with the poor and outcasts of the world, and where he displays his incredible majesty, we have to always constantly be coming back to the fact that while the stories are good and true and actual events that took place in history, more amazingly is the fact that Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah as the overcoming God King. And we should be more fascinated with him than we are with the stories. He should be our favorite thing in the book, not that story or that parable or that event or that interaction, but him. And if we do not have him as the center of every story, every event, every interaction, we are losing out on the most important thing that Scripture reveals to us is Scripture shows us the reality of who Christ is and how we need to respond to him in faith and in trust. And if we are just filling ourselves with stories about Jesus, then we are pitiful because we should be filling ourselves with Jesus himself. He should be what fascinates us. He should be what grips our attention. He is the amazing thing about the book of John. And he does reveal himself in the stories and events. But let's not get caught up in all the different stories, all the different events. Let's get caught up in the person and work of Christ himself. Sound good? Because we're going to remind ourselves constantly that the point of John is to show us Christ, who is the Messiah who is overcoming the world, death, and sin, overcoming every one of your failures. He overcomes it. And he demonstrates himself, not just as a good moral man of teaching, but as God. And he doesn't demonstrate himself as someone who is weak, unable. He is king. And every time we turn to these historical events in Scripture, we are reminded that this is not just a story for us to feel good about. This is our Savior, on full display to worship and to bow down before and to acknowledge before the world that he and he alone saves us from our sins. And if that is not what we're getting out of these stories, then quite frankly, you don't need to show up. We're showing up to be enamored and to be amazed at who Christ is And what he's offering to us. And today, he enters into one of my favorite stories. And I know I just said we're not supposed to think of it as stories. But what an amazingly bold statement he makes about the seriousness of coming before God in corporate worship. See, he starts out in this expectation versus reality moment. And we've all been faced with that. We've all had these great expectations only to see reality disappoint us. We've all had these expectations, oh, this is going to be a great movie or a great book, and we have saw it and we read it and we're like, why is everybody excited about this? Or we all go to this favorite place, you got to go to this, you got to go to this. One of my favorite, and I'm not picking on South Dakota, so please, if you're from South Dakota, I'm not trying to pick on you, but for 300 miles, okay, you know exactly what I'm going to say. They tell you, you got to stop and check out Wall Drug or is it Wall Drug? Okay, you know what? They build the expectation unbelievably. Like this is the best thing you've ever seen. This is a, this is amazing. This is this is one of America's jewels of national treasure. Oh my. No. It is literally just a tourist trap where you spend money on magnets and hats and sweatshirts and That's about it, but you got like a whole block to do that in. Wow, I was expecting, I don't know what I was expecting, but that was a letdown. But we went there, checked it off, yeah, we got it done. But you know what it's like to have this expectation, oh, this is going to be awesome, this is going to be great, and then it lets you down completely. I want to set the stage. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going for Passover. In fact, the first two verses there uh, tell us in verse 13 and 14, the Passover of the the Jews was at hand. This is a time celebrating and remembering how God led his promised people out of Egypt. It was the first full moon after the spring equinox. So once the spring equinox happened, the first full moon that occurred after that is Passover for that week. Sometimes seven days, sometimes eight days. It depends on the Jewish calendar. But Jesus is ready to go to what was the ultimate, ultimate celebration of worship and praising God through sacrifices, the ultimate demonstration of God's victory, leading his captive people into the promised land. This was the, ult- this was the super bowl of super bowls every year, this event, the Passover. And if it was possible, every good Jew was supposed to save and make that journey and go to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover. That was what they were supposed to do every year, make this uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, and witness the horrors of sacrifice so that it would remind them of what God has done for them in bringing about forgiveness of sins. And it was to point them to Jesus because bulls and goats and turtle doves and, and pigeons and all those things, none of them could adequately represent your value before god if every animal was slaughtered upon the earth upon a temple altar it still would not pay for your sins individually you are more valuable than every single created beast in the world all of them combined would not equal your value as a human before god so it was to point them to we need a different sacrifice we need a different appointed one we need someone who is like us but perfect and here's jesus He's like us, but perfect because he's fully God and fully man. And so he goes to Jerusalem for this incredible celebration. I can just imagine he is waiting and longing to see how people are worshiping him and excited that here he is now, the Messiah in the flesh, ready to fulfill all the law's demands and put away sacrifices forever because he'd be the last sacrifice. And that is not what he saw. He went up into Jerusalem and in the temple, verse 14, he found what did he find? He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. What he saw was a spectacle. Now, some of this was not unreasonable. If you're making a journey from, say, Rome, to Jerusalem because that's your responsibility and duty as a Jewish person to make that pilgrimage and journey to sacrifice. And we know that sacrifices had to be an unblemished animal depending on what you were able to pay. You could bring an ox and a sheep or a turtle dove, something of less value. And you're not going to make that journey for three or four weeks with an animal because if if it gets bruised or if it dies or it gets sick, you can't offer that. So oftentimes, they would make the journey all the way to Jerusalem, have money, and then buy the animal when they were there. Makes sense. But what was happening is that the culture and the economy decided, you know what, we got people right where we want them. They're making these long journeys and long trips, and we are going to extort them. Instead of saying, hey, this is the actual fair value price of it, have it. Take it, and if you can't afford it, it's free. Because this is a way to reach God as far as acknowledging his greatness and our distance, and you need a sacrifice to show that. Instead of showing gentleness and kindness and a community of spirit, there were people who were taking advantage of others. And so you'd arrive at Jerusalem and you'd have your gold coins, but your gold coins were worthless. You needed temple money. So you had to go to the temple and exchange your money for whatever the temple currency was at the moment. And of course, that wasn't a fair exchange of $1 for $1. You'd pay a dollar, and you'd get maybe 50 cents, especially during Passover. Other times of the year, you'd get a better exchange rate, but it was a terrible exchange rate because they knew you needed this sacrifice, you needed this animal, and you had to pay in special money. So you had to pay an exorbitant exchange rate in order to get that. So instead of walking into the temple and Jesus seeing people worshiping and praying and singing and hearing God's word and attending the sacrifices, he saw a bargaining table all set up and everyone acknowledging and having to submit to the bargaining table in order to have access to God to sacrifice. That's not what God designed. That's not what he set up. He set up for your heart to be unbelievably opened at that moment and revealed before God and acknowledging your sin and acknowledging a need for one greater than this animal to atone for that sin. And you longed for and hoped for the promise of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, to take that burden every year off of your shoulders. But he didn't see that. He saw bizarre craziness, bargaining, a total distortion of what God wanted from his people. It was a destruction of worship, not a celebration of worship. Not what he was expecting, but it was the reality. How many years had that been going on? Who knows how many years. If so, it was ingrained in their culture that they didn't even think it was any different than it should be. It has always been that way. It's always been a ruckus, It's always been just a turmoil and and tumultuous moment of worshiping God through exchanging money in order to get the right sacrifice at the right price. It's not what God wanted. It's not what God intended for his people when he instituted that worship practice. So Jesus responds to it. It says in verse 15, after he saw all these things, And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he took those who sold the pigeons. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is loving Jesus. Just compassionate, just a man that you would consider a walking symbol of peace when he sees God's house being so abused and so taken for granted and changed from a house of worship to a house of business, and not just business, extortion, he doesn't lose his temper. Because if he lost his temper... They'd be dead. But an amazing control, he gives them a time to repent because he simply drives them out. He doesn't destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. Imagine someone attacking your family name the history of your parents. Now, you may or may not have a great relationship with your parents. I totally understand that. So you may be saying, great, I don't care if they make fun of them. But in, in, in a world of compassionate parents and grandparents, if they made fun of them, told a your mama joke about your mama, or slandered your husband, or your wife, or your children, those are fighting words. There's almost every, you you can make fun of Chicago all you want. You can make fun of the Bears all you want. You know, you can tell me that LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan, okay? (sighs) Those aren't fighting words. But to talk about my family, that's a whole other story. They were ridiculing the creator, God. Ridiculing. His rescue of the Israelites out of the land of Egypt and turning it into a free-for-all of who can make the most money. I think Jesus' response is curbed. It's settled. It's exactly what was needed. Get them out of my Father's house. Take these things away, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make my father's house into something it was not intended to be. You are lying about the nature of the temple. What was the temple in general? This is the second temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed with the Babylonian captivity this is the second temple. Sometimes it's called Herod the Great's temple, even though it was built after the uh, Israelites came out of the land of bondage in, in uh, the Babylon, uh, Babylon and Assyria. This is the second temple. It wasn't as big or as grand as Solomon's temple, but Herod the Great invested about 60 years of making it even better in the day of Christ. So it was a beautiful temple, but it was designed to remind Israel of one thing, that in order to get near to God, there were all these rituals and ceremonies and laws, and I can't do it. It is too burdensome. I need another to do it for me. It was all designed to point us to Christ will be our atonement. Christ will be our sacrifice. Christ will take care of all the duties and binding of that law and lift it off of my shoulder. He will bear all of these things. I don't have to. And it was to remind them that sacrifice was ugly and smelly and bloody and, and horrific to the ears and to the eyes and to the experience. There are stories written in history of Josephus who lived right around the time of Christ where he recorded that sometimes at the temple you would have to wade ankle deep through the blood of the sacrifices. Imagine the smell of that, the sight of it, The sound of those animals as they're sacrificed had to be horrific for seven straight days. It was to remind them of how serious sin is, how serious worship is. It was a place to set aside the common and ordinary and be thrilled that God has given us a way to approach him. And instead, they turned the father's house into a house of trade. No different than a house in Rome, no different than a marketplace in Philippi, no different than a temple in Corinth. It was just a place where business was done. All the spiritual side of things were gone. His disciples, verse 17, were kind of given a little bit of a fast forward into history, and then John writes it as if it's happening at the moment, It says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm 69, 69, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a psalm in which David talks about God's house and worship and fervor for God. And the disciples realize that at this moment, this is a fulfillment of Jesus Christ when he says, the zeal of my father's house will be upon me. I am zealous. I am guarding worship. And when you bastardize worship, I get upset and I'm going to correct you. When you tell people this is how you approach God and it's not how you approach God, he challenges it and corrects it. He does the right thing. And the disciples remember, oh, that's right. Remember in Psalm 69, verse 9, the zeal of my father's house will consume me. He guards worship of the father immensely do you guard your time of worship that seriously do you take that seriously do you wake up on a sunday morning and go that this is the day i get to gather together as a corporate body of god's people and we get to worship god not with sacrifices but with praise to the one who was sacrificed Praise to the one who was risen. Praise to the one who has forgiven me. Praise to the one who has made me whole. Praise to the one who's given me life. Are you that excited? Are you that diligent? As you walk through that door, your mind is set on one thing. How do I draw near close to God? How do I draw near to him? How do I draw near to him? Or are you thinking, like most of us, This is this going to go long? It's Communion Sunday. And I want to eat, like right now. And as beautiful and as wonderful as those fresh donuts from Schuster's are, it's not going to be satisfying in the long run. I need food. I need lunch. What's for lunch? Where are we going to go? And your mind can be so fixated on the things of this world that you forget why you've gathered together. And it's not to punch your card that I've been in church this month, I'm done. It's to fall before a holy God in absolute surrender, acknowledging that you are not worthy. And if it was not for the work of Christ and his coming in the flesh, you would be destitute without hope and dead in your sins. But you are made alive in Christ. And so you come to celebrate that. You come every Sunday to declare, He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of His value, He's placed upon me, I am made one of His children. I am adopted into His family. And I have life everlasting. I have promises of resurrection. I have promises of being free from the sin and temptation of this world. And it's only found in Christ. Is that how you approach worship? Is that what you do when you walk through those doors? Or is your mind so set on how busy the week is that you are? I'm here in church, I made my appearance. Is it routine for you? Is it ordinary? Is it just habit? Is it tradition? Or worse, are you doing it to make someone else happy? Are you doing it for yourself? Because you need to draw near to this Savior without drawing near to him your day your week will feel weak that is a taste of what the zeal for the house of the Lord is a zeal for worship a zeal for the seriousness of what we are engaged in through song and prayer and preaching See, worship is not just do I like the song and is it sung well. Worship is the entire experience where we are reminded we are before a holy God and without him we are hopeless. Christ knew that. He saw that and he expected his people to follow suit. He expects us to follow in that path. Not to make church into a social club or a membership or a, hey, look, God, what I do. No. It's to say to Jesus, without you, I am nothing. And I get the privilege of spending an hour of time a week out of the 168 that I'm given, and I get to, get, I get to spend it with your people, acknowledging one supreme fact that you are God and I am not. You are the Savior, I am not. You are the one who makes me alive. You are the one who gives me hope. That was so important to Jesus that he physically removed those who opposed that worship. Early on in the book of John, In the next verses, verses 18 through verse 21, Jesus really points out for us the ultimate sign that Jesus is indeed the overcoming God king when he says, the Jews said to him, obviously someone's going to say something about what just happened at the temple. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They wanted to know basically by what authority You know, you get in here all self-righteous and tell us that our way of worship is wrong, that our way of approaching God is distorted. Who gives you the right? Who gives you the right to violate all these traditions? We've been doing this for 400 years just fine. You show up and drive these people away, they're probably thinking, how do they now worship God? How can they buy an animal and sacrifice? This guy's getting in the way of what we do. And maybe a few were thinking... I just lost a whole day's worth of profit. Best day in the world. And this guy just shuts it up. How am I going to reopen? So they ask him, by what sign are you doing this? By what authority? How can you prove to us what you're doing is right by the hand of God? And so Jesus answered them. And and in Scripture, you'll notice, especially in the Gospels, when it says Jesus answered them, generally what follows, the people probably should never have asked a question. Okay, because when he answers it this way, it's always a matter of correction. And everyone probably at that moment said, ooh, that's right, I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. Although God knew it in your heart. So the Jews said to him, by what sign do you do these things? Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, that's destroy this temple. And in their mind, they're thinking of, Herod the Great's temple, the temple built after the exile that Herod the Great invested 60 years' worth of money and labor into to make it even better than Solomon's temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews said to him again in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. That's the time where they built it during the times of, uh, oh, Nehemiah. And when he came back, he built the wall, built the temple during that time, 46 years it took him to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, that is, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple, but have this temple destroyed, and I will raise it up in three days. And he was talking about the ultimate expression of worship at that moment. He was equating himself to the way to God. Because the temple was designed and instituted by God as this is how Israel comes and approaches God. You have to do it this way, this way, this way, and this way. And you got to be perfect in it. There's no way for human invention or human tradition to be added to it. It had to be God's way. And he's saying, I am God's way. I am the temple. He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. He's talking about the fact that he's going to be crucified and in three days he's going to be back up on top. course they understood it as how are you going to destroy this temple that took 46 years to build Herod's been investing a ton of money and time in restoration how do you destroy it and build it up again in three days and I don't care how marvelous our modern mechanical wonders are but rebuilding a temple this size in three days would be physically impossible for us in this time and age let alone 2,000 years ago. But he wasn't talking about stones. He was talking about his own body. That he would be raised up in three days. And verse 22 tells us that. When therefore he was raised from the dead, 20 chapters later, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. What is the response of the disciples? They see all this happening, and they start putting all these things together, especially after the death, uh, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they go, three years ago he talked about this. Do you remember that day where he cleansed out the temple? And we have two recordings of that in Scripture, one at the beginning of his ministry here and one at the end of his ministry in the other Gospels. So he cleared out the temple twice, and they didn't learn their lesson the first time, so he had to do it a second time. But the disciples remembered. He talked about the destruction of the temple He was talking about his own life. You see, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only road, the only key to a right relationship with God the Father. And it was not through the stones of a building or the traditions erected around those stones, but it's through Christ and Christ alone. And then we have the conclusion of this section of chapter 2 in particular, verse uh, 23 through 25, Giving us a little bit of insight into Christ's understanding of humanity. It says in verse 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So, so, obviously, while he was there in Jerusalem for the Passover for those seven to eight days, he was doing other miracles not recorded in scripture. And people were seeing the miracles and they believed, seeing the miracles and they believed, seeing signs and wonders and they were believing. 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what they were looking at, looking for. What were they looking for? Miracles, wonder, entertainment, power, amazement. They were looking at the stuff about Jesus, not him. They weren't infatuated with him. They were infatuated with the stuff he was doing. From their mind, maybe the tricks he was doing. It takes us back to the very beginning, doesn't it? When I said, when we look at the stories about Christ, don't get enamored initially with all the different stuff he's doing, how wise he is in responding to people, the miracles he's performing, and forget the most important thing about those stories, himself, and how he shows us and creates a way for us to have a relationship with God that is based on hope and freedom and joy and the fulfillment of all the law's demands on his part that he gives to you freely. Jesus did not on his part entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what man was. He himself knew that he did not need a pat on the back from people. He knew that there were a lot of people following him because he had power, because he was doing miraculous things, because he was putting the religious leaders in their place, because you never know, he's going to drive people away with a whip. This is a pretty exciting guy to be around, and Jesus sees right through that, sees right through us, sees right through our fakeness, sees right through our superficial attitude towards living the Christian life, sees it, knows it, identifies it. The only difference is he's not walking in here with a whip driving us out. He's giving us the Holy Spirit to convict us in moments like this, and in moments like this table to remind us of what he's done and how serious it is. Just as serious as Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden when they saw God walking, they were afraid of being in the presence of a holy God. Just like Moses fell on the ground and removed his shoes because he was walking on holy ground. And just like Isaiah was trembling in his boots when he saw God revealed from heaven, and just like the angels prostrated themselves and worshiped before him because he is a holy God, should our attendance to worship be just as serious and just as important and just as dependent upon Christ to bring us into the Holy of Holies as anything else. That doesn't mean, though, worship has to be with our hands closed, our knees together and our head bowed, and not a smile on our face. God has created us to show joy and happiness and excitement. And we can show that in singing and in prayer and in hearing God's word. So don't think that in order to be serious, it means you have to be at attention before God. God doesn't call us to attention. God calls us to be humble before him. And in that humility, I know exactly how you're going to respond. You're going to be flat down on your face, worshiping and praising and adoring the God who's made it possible that you can enter into the Holy of Holies with reverence and joy. You cannot have one without the other. You must have reverence when worshiping Him, and you must have joy. And that's only found through Christ. So I'm going to ask uh, the guys who are going to help with communion this morning to come up, and we're going to remind ourselves that the brokenness of this bread and the beauty of this cup is there to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ And the joy that we have that he has brought us into the kingdom. And you are all welcome to partake of it. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. You say, oh, Tim, I'm not good enough for that. I'm too far away from God. And that's the point of this. This is to bring you near to God. So if you feel far from him, then this is exactly the place you need to be. If you feel that your sin is so great, this is the place that is forgiven. If you feel, Tim, I think Jesus would drive me out today and he's driving you to this table to draw near to him. Let's pray. That was a lot, Father. I ask that you would be with us to be patient, to be kind. Show us the joy and peace and love in this table and in this community that we might shout forth your praises in song, that our hearts might be near to you in prayer and that our minds be active in learning your word and holding on to it with all our strength. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son, for the beauty of this bread and the beauty of this cup. May we draw near to you because you have first drawn near to us. And all of God's people said, amen.